Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, we are continuing this morning in Exodus 19. And uh, so won't you open or take up your Bible, open your Bible and follow with me. And I'm only going to be handling verses 17 uh, down to verse, uh, in fact, it's verse 7 down to verse 21, uh, part one of that. And uh, next time, God willing, I will pick up the remainder of that uh, portion. But then reading from verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, this is the portion for this morning. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. With a beast or man he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. Next time from verse 16, but I want to read it now. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet, trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. And I want to read the first verse of chapter 20 because this is often the, the place we start reading about the Ten Commandments but neglect what comes before. And God spoke all these words saying, and he goes on elaborating on what has become known as the Ten Commandments. Lord, we pray this morning that as we have been singing that we, we would behold our God. You have revealed yourself, Lord. Your spirit is among us. Pray that you would speak to us, that you would lead us in, in, in awe of who you are, the Lord, holy and mighty. Praying this and coming in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, this morning I'm going to begin and introduce this message by reading a poem, a poem that I stumbled on. It's a poem by John Godfrey Sachs. It's called The Blind Man and the Elephant. Listen carefully uh, to these words. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against the broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, oh, what have I here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me it is mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The six no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quote he, the elephant is very like a rope. Now the poem doesn't end, but listen to the lesson. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants I ween tread in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prate about the elephant not one of them have seen. I don't know if you get it, 
But that poem spoke volumes to me. And the point of the poem is obvious. It, it, it's very clear. It's what many people do. It's sometimes what you and I do when we are thinking about who God is. Believing at times that we can, they can, by groping around in the dark as finite creatures with limitations how that somehow we can examine God who is infinite and then be able to come up with accurate, definitive conclusions about who He is. That approach is common. It's approach known as theology from below. Where men and women with limited capacities, even though they have high intelligence or high IQ, they pontificate with confidence on the ill-informed, distorted findings about God. It's not possible for a blind person to have full view of an elephant. Am I right? It's not possible. It's not possible for sinful, finite man to have a full view of the infinite, majestic God. Well, I want to continue the analogy of the elephant as we dig into Exodus 19 this morning, and we see that our elephant talks. And so graciously revealing truth about himself, involved in what we would call the self-revelation of God. God telling us, God telling the people in this passage who he is, and what he is like. Therefore, because he tells them, and, and therefore because he tells us, enabling us finite beings with our limited capacity to know God. That, that's the blessing that we can behold God. It's called theology, doing theology from above. Doing theology, the knowledge of God from what God has revealed, from what God has told us, what God has showed us about himself. Listening then to God in this passage before us this morning, we can know more about God. And I do pray that when you leave here this morning, you would be in awe of the reality of who God is. We can know more of what God is like. Now, there are two main observations that I want to consider in this message today, and both of them are necessary uh, for us to consider uh, what God is like according to this particular passage, this chapter 19 of Exodus, and of course the rest of the Bible. And so my first observation that I want to elaborate on this morning is that God stoops in coming to us. Well, I did a bit of research this week and discovered that King Shaka lived from 1787 to 1828 and was then assassinated. Most of you will know that he was the founder and the establisher of the Zulu kingdom. Obviously a mighty leader. And so thinking about him and the issue that I want to try and illustrate here this morning, I can imagine 
King Shaka being escorted and held up literally by hundreds and possibly even thousands of Zulu impus, impis uh, protecting him and, 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 and conveying him to any destination that he would desire or choose to be. Now imagine that king. Shaka, in that position, in that elevated position, stepping aside, standing aside, setting his impies aside, finding a little child playing in the mud, playing in the dirt, the little child with a snotty nose and a dirty face. What's he doing? He's stooping. He's stooping down. He willingly is stooping down to be near the child. Another word we could think of or a word we could use is condescension. I chose not to use that word. And there's a good reason because words often change in their meaning depending on a community and a society. And in our world today, condescension means patronizing. Looking down your nose at somebody else. I'm condescending towards this person or that person. One, one who is critical and puts others down. It's not the proper meaning or the original meaning of the word. As you know, descend means to lower. Condescend means to be lowered with. So when we say that God condescends, when God stoops in coming near to us, it means that he descends and he lowers himself. Now, this is the point. Thinking about God, thinking about this passage, thinking about our lives in this world, he lowers himself and he takes a place. He takes a place that is far below the level of his own importance to be near us. God takes a position lower a level lower, far below his own importance to be near us. And so God is willing to stoop. And so as a result, we learn something about the nature of God. We learn in the first instance something of what I want to call this morning what is known as the imminence of God. What does that tell us? Well, the imminence of God describes his nearness to us, his relatedness to us, his connectedness to us. God is present among us, even as we gather here today. Two or three gathered in the name of Jesus. We know he is with us. We know that for the believer, he lives within us. Or if we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is close. God is at work among us. God is around us. God is involved in the unfolding of all of his redemptive purposes. It's a beautiful attribute of God. To speak of God's imminence is to speak of his close personal involvement, God's close personal interaction with his creation with all of his creation, but specifically with those who are his children. And in Exodus 19, we, saw, we see here that he draws near and he speaks. Something we take for granted, but give that consideration this morning. God speaks. He speaks to Moses and he speaks through Moses to the people. Just the picking up of some of the phrases in the passage in verse 3, the Lord called out to him saying, 
in verse 6, these are the words, language, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, again, the Lord said to Moses, what does that tell you about the imminence of God? It tells us that God is relational. There's not only a connectedness, but there's communication, there's intimacy. God is personable. He's a speaking God. Exodus chapter 19 is not the first time that God speaks that we have record of. You go right back to the beginning in Genesis with Adam in the garden. God spoke with him. And he did so throughout the Old Testament. We see that he spoke uh, frequently uh, uh, through the prophets and consistently revealing more and more about himself. So we go back to that word God's self-revelation. You don't have to stumble in the dark God speaks and and God tells us what he's like. And then finally, with the coming of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews uh, summarizes this process for us. Chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, looking backwards, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The self-revelation of God in the person of Jesus, and let's not forget that which was spoken of in days gone by, uh, that which was witnessed about the Lord Jesus has not been lost, it has not been forgotten, it has been preserved in writing. Even as the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. We have a record of God speaking. God has spoken. It is written. Preach the Word. Wonderful three sentences to remember. We have the Bible, and we refer to it, of course, as God's Word. And and we must not forget, we must not forget the miracle of condescension that God is near in His presence and and that He would would see fit to speak to us. Stooping or condescension is necessary for His dealings with us because of another attribute that we need to understand about God, the transcendence of God. We have a member of our church, he's sick at the moment, unable to come. So I visit him from time to time, and I've discovered in my visits with him that he does calculus for fun. Anybody else do calculus for fun? Most of us don't even know what calculus is. Okay, I'm one of those. Because calculus transcends our ability and thinking. Calculus is beyond us. Just by the way, we have some others in the church, I've discovered, some young people who are astrophysicists. I can't even say it. All right? Again, that's a a study, it's a science, it's a discipline that is beyond us. That's what this word transcendence means. To transcend means to go beyond. And so when we're thinking about God, as as we study this passage, it describes God's distance 
from His creatures. Because God is infinitely holy, because of His infinite greatness and our finite ability. And so the transcendence is His otherness. God is so different to us. His separateness from everything that He has made that He is exalted above everything that exists, all that He has made. Listen to, to 1 Timothy. Where, where Timothy, uh, Paul writing to Timothy gets a, 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 a grasp of this concept of transcendence. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, speaking of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. God is so great. He's above anything that we can ever fully understand or grasp. Therefore, presenting us with what I would describe as the mystery of God, taking me to a third point. The eminence and the transcendence of God. The closeness and the distance. I quote uh, Old Testament theologian Philip Riken. He says, God was bringing his people close at Mount Sinai. That's close to himself. Yet the closer they came, the more they saw the vast distance that still separated them from God. At the same time that God was revealing himself, he was also concealing himself. The more they experienced his imminence, the more they recognized his transcendence. Now we serve a magnificent God. And so God is not one or the other, and, and, and different expressions of Christianity sometimes make that mistake. Some focus only on His imminence, His closeness, and, 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 and His presence, and, and others focus on Him just being far away and distant. No, it's both. It's both and. Listen to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Dear friend, we cannot climb up to God. The infinite majestic and holy, transcendent God must condescend. He needs to stoop to come to us. And, and, and in all honesty, in, in, in plain reality, this is the story of the gospel. We'll see in weeks and months to come, God willing, in the book of Exodus, the building of the tabernacle. Why? Symbolically representing God, the almighty, infinite God, transcendent God, dwelling in the midst of his people, imminent. Similarly, not to forget the mystery we're confronted with when we try to understand the incarnation of Jesus. How do you understand God taking on human flesh? Jesus, fully God, fully man, 
As fully God, we see some glimpses beyond our understanding, but not fully. But as fully man in full view of us. And so the transcendence and the eminence of God, we see, find their fullest expression in the incarnation of Jesus. Is that Christmas carol that we sing? One of my favorites. Veiled in flesh the Godhead seed. Think about those words. I think we roll them off our tongues without thinking. Veiled. We don't see all of God because He's too big. He's transcendent. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, but He's come among us. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Dear friends, God is with us. God is with us. He comes near to us in Christ, and we draw near to Him through Christ, the one mediator, the reconciler, reconciling sinful man to a holy God through substitutionary atonement. And and don't forget this. In the midst of your own ordeals and difficulties and hardships, it is in Christ that we find the one who does not only make the mountains quake, but he comes and he weeps for his friend Lazarus. It's the mystery, mystery of God. Do you really know who God is? Do you know how he comes near? Do you know how to draw close to him? It is only in Jesus. I want to add a fourth observation in this passage or from this passage. I've called it the fear of God. Exodus 19 verse 16 on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. Now, can you imagine the scene? And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God kept his distance. We notice hiding in the dark cloud of glory. They could not cope with a full view of God. And so in verse 9, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And and we see in this instance God coming. He was not only here but elsewhere often covered when he exposed himself in, in these manifestations. He was often covered with a thick and glorious cloud. Isaiah chapter 6, the well-known passage we often quote And Isaiah entered the throne room of heaven. He saw God surrounded by smoke. At the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, the disciples saw saw Jesus enveloped in a bright cloud. And so the clouds that surround God and the presence of God show His divine glory, but they also hide it. You think you can put God in a box? You haven't got the right God. You haven't got God. The clouds of glory, writes one, another author, John McKay, he says, suggest both heavenly majesty and concealment of the divine from the scrutiny of mankind. Notice in our passage also, God kept his distance by telling Israel to stay off the holy mountain, verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Do you you see something of what perhaps is missing in contemporary Christianity? Something of the sense of the awe and the greatness and the majesty, the holiness and the separateness, the transcendence of God? But when he descended onto the mountain and was amongst them, 
The mountain, yes, gave us some insight into his presence and, and, and needed to be fenced off. Severe consequences for those who transgressed the parameters set out by God. Violators would be executed. But I want you to notice also that God kept his distance for the protection of the people. There have been occasions, if you've read through your Bible, where sinners have been destroyed by the sheer holiness of God. Just being in the presence of God. It happened to Nadab and Abihu, who were burned by the fire from God's altar in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. It happened to Uzzah, a passage that has troubled most of us, or many of us, who simply touched the ark of God's presence in 1 Chronicles 13. God is so transcendent that coming into His holy presence can mean sudden death for sinners. Even as God later tells Moses in Exodus 33, which we'll get to in time to come, verse 20, you cannot see my face. Remember when Moses pleaded to just see the glory of God. You cannot see my face. He said to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so, folks, my second point, my second point, the first point, God has come, he has condescended, he has stooped, the reality of his eminence and presence. But number two, we cannot be casual in coming near to him. The people here in Exodus 19 faced a terrible dilemma. They were being drawn close to the immediate presence of a holy God, who was too dangerous for them to approach. See the dilemma. Verse 12. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And so here's the question. What could they do to be safe coming close to the mountain, even with God having set limits, leaving them with somewhat restricted access. And there's just one point I want to make. <coughs> Preparations had to be made for his coming. Again, the broader context of the covenant that God made with his people is crucial to understand these preparations. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9, just to give you some context. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. How did they perceive God in terms of this covenant that was being made with them? Well, similar to other treaties that were made by kings and, and vassals in that particular time, the initiator of their covenant is seen as a king. And so therefore, it's no wonder that the people had to get ready to even get close to the mountain. Why? Because the king was coming. The king was coming to address them, and not just any king. This is the transcendent king. This is the great king. Or as Timothy, Paul describes him to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Point being, they had to be consecrated, which means they had to be set apart as holy. Verse 10, 
The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. What was going on here? You see, the king was coming. And so they had to wash their clothes, a sign, an external sign of sanctification. Clothing often uh, served as an outward symbol of someone's spiritual condition. Lesson for us, lesson for them. Being recipients of grace, not to forget that these people Many of them were saved. Eh? They, they were recipients of grace. Being recipients of grace did not give them license to flippantly and casually draw close to the mountain from which God would speak. There is the added comment. Perhaps some of you have wondered the preparation they were to, in the preparation they were to abstain from having sex. Verse 15. It's not because sex is bad. No, not at all. It's the same idea we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. In these preparations putting aside all earthly cares that they might give their full attention to God giving their undivided attention to the king and his law. Which leads me to my conclusion, which I've called an implication. Maybe a couple of comments. Dear folk, there is no need to speculate as to what God is like. Because of God's self-revelation in the Bible, from the Bible, Drawing wrong conclusion. And here's the mistake we all make. We try and define God based on our life experience. Like the blind man stumbling into the elephant's leg. We all come up with different views of what we think and speculate God to be. No, that's not right. You can draw near to God in Christ and through Christ. But do not underestimate the holiness of God. And I can put it in plain English, and this would go against what many in contemporary Christianity would say today. Don't mess with God. You can't mess with God. If we don't have passages like this and study passages like this in the Bible, you will have a wrong understanding of who God is. You will, have, you will not have the right conception. He's in a cloud, setting limits at, at a distance. If you touch the mountain, you die. Listen again. Being justified. Man, I celebrate justification by faith. Being declared righteous, that's what it means. As one who is in Christ, does not cancel the need for sanctification. And I know some people are thinking, oh man, you're rambling on from the Old Testament. Well, let me give you some New Testament revelation. In the, it is in the context of the Apostle Paul telling the Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. Imminence, closeness, God at hand. You know what happens? 
The very same passage is followed by a string of promises. And then he urges them to pursue holiness. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, this is the Apostle Paul now concluding. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Flippancy in attitudes or casualness in attitudes of approach toward even accommodating sin in many instances, dear friends, will grieve the Spirit of God. You may even provoke the anger and discipline of God. And so this morning, my final comment, let us be those who worship God in awe and reverence. Again, as Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 6, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Lord, we prayed at the beginning that you would enable us more and more to behold you. And I do ask again that your words from Scripture, and Lord, forgive me if I've expressed inadequately this morning something of the greatness of your majesty. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher, correcting, informing, molding our lives in response, giving to you the honor and the due and the awe that you're worthy of. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus who has opened up the way. Thank you for forgiveness and justification. But Lord, as we face the world tomorrow, enable us to resist the evil one and draw close to God. And may you be exalted and glorified in that as well, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.